0: Welcome to the Gathering Church. If you're a guest and you're joining us today, we're, we're glad that you've uh, joined us today. We're, we're grateful that you're here. And this is our first Sunday together as a, as a new congregation. Gathering Church and Lentz Baptist Church are now one church, so that's really exciting for us. <laughs> so if you've come uh, today and this is your first, uh, first Sunday We've come in a fairly strategic Sunday because we are finishing the Sermon on the Mount today. We've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. We started the first week of January, and we've, we'll finish through Chapter 7 today, and we'll take a break for the summer. The summer we're going to preach on uh, the doctrine of the local church, uh, life together as a as a church. And then this fall, uh, we're not quite sure what we're going to preach on, either go back to something from uh, the Old Testament, thinking about preaching through 1 Samuel, possibly, and then we'll probably come back to Matthew uh, at the beginning of next year. Beginning of 2018, we'll jump back in in chapter 8, and we'll probably preach through for about six months. And we'll be going through Matthew over the next couple years till we, till we wrap up. But I said it's a strategic Sunday because these last few verses here on the Sermon of the Mount are a summary of sorts. Uh, Jesus is he's summarizing what he's been teaching through Uh, Chapter 5 and chapter 6 and the beginning part of chapter 7, he's he's leaving his listeners with with four parables. He's leaving them with four exhortations to actually do what he's been telling them to do. So what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus Christ, he is uh, the son of David, which means that he is the rightful king of Israel. He's one who has authority as the king of Israel. Uh, He's also the son of Abraham which means that through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's the promised seed that would come through uh, Abraham. So he's the king, he's the blessing to the nations, but he's also the the rightful Moses, which means that he's the lawgiver. He's the one that speaks to his people with authority. uh, As he sat down and went up to the mountain and sat down, just as Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, Jesus sits down and gives the law to us. So he is one who is the rightful king of Israel. He's the blessing to the nations through the seed of Abraham. And he's the true prophet that speaks the word of God to us. And he's one who has authority. That's how this section will end here. And verse 728 says, And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. We sang about it this morning. He has authority over us. We heard about it in Psalm 2, that he is the rightful king and all must bow their knee to him. When the father opens the heavens later in Matthew's gospel at the transfiguration, the one thing that the father will say to us is, this is my son, listen to him. And he closes this Sermon on the Mount with giving us four different parables and challenging us to actually obey him. Challenging us to actually build our lives on the things that he's been teaching us up to this point. So we get to the end here, and it's, uh, when, I was, um, when I was in eighth grade, I, I was in a middle school band. I actually played the trumpet for two years. Yeah. My mom used to make me practice outside on the back deck. <laughs> and we lived, okay, this is a tangent. Well, we lived in uh, in Big Bear Lake, California, and there were these there were wild burrows all over Big Bear, and the burrows actually would walk through our backyard. So I would go out there on my trumpet, and these burrows would actually start honking back to me. <laughs> Needless to say, I was really good. But I remember um, at the end of eighth grade, we went down to this festival, and we'd been practicing these these songs all year long, and we got to the very point where we were going to go and perform at this festival, and the, uh, our conductor just said, you guys know what to do. Just just go do it. And it's almost like if at, at, the, at, at game seven of the NBA finals, I imagine that the pep talk was something like, you guys know what to do. You've been brought to this point, you know the teaching, now do it. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is saying to us. I've been giving you these teachings. I've been telling you how you ought order and live your lives as one under my authority. Now do it. Now go and do it. So well, let's look at this text this morning, these four different parables. And we're going to organize them under three points. Point one is the straight way. Point two is the last day. And point three is the foundation. The straight way, the last day, the foundation, the straight way, the last day, the foundation. I'm going to read to us now, starting at verse uh, chapter 7, verse 13 through 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful this morning for your word. We're grateful that we do have a king who has authority. And it is right for us to submit ourselves to his reign and rule and authority over our lives. And we pray, Father, that by the preaching of your word... And through this teaching that our Lord Jesus has given us, that we would become obedient to you, God. And that our obedience would be a path to flourishing. That we would find life through the narrow gate, the narrow and straight way. That we would build our lives on the foundation of Jesus' teaching. And that we would not be like those on the last day who you never know. Tremble at the thought. We want to be known by you. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Point one, the straight way. Verse 13 and 14 talk about entering by a narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I think one point just at the outset here to realize is that everyone is on a road, everyone's life is on a path. And I think what's even more striking that this text is bringing to our attention here is that every single one of us have certain kinds of faith commitments. You might be a, a, a non-religious person and hearing me say that, you say, well, I, I don't have any faith commitments, I'm not, a, I'm not a religious person, I'm not a Christian, I'm just here kind of exploring this Christianity thing. But I think Jesus would tell us that everyone does have faith commitments, and your faith commitments are actually taking you somewhere. What do I mean by that? Well, most of the things in our lives that truly have meaning to us, like Love and beauty and relationships and commitments, those things are based on faith commitments. We can't empirically measure love between two human beings, men or women, as you're looking for a spouse, someone to potentially marry, and you're sensing if this woman actually or this man actually loves you. There's no scientific way to actually measure that and prove that. It's simply a faith commitment, or even to say that there should be fidelity within a relationship or fidelity within a marriage, levels of morality. These things aren't scientifically proven. At the bottom, these things are actually faith commitments. You're taking it on faith. You're believing that living this sort of way actually leads to human flourishing, but there's no way to sort of scientifically prove that that's true. So all of our lives are actually based on faith commitments, on what we understand human flourishing to actually be. And everyone is on a road. Everyone is on a road, and that road is based on the commitments that they believe life to be, at, what life to be all about. And that's going to take you somewhere. That road actually leads somewhere. So everyone, in a sense, is on the road. But a second sort of subcategory to think about when we're thinking about everyone being on a road is that there is no neutrality. There's no neutrality. There's no sense in which um, uh, all roads lead to the same path. If there was ever a text to, to disprove that idea, it would be this one. If there was ever a text that said, Uh, no, not all roads actually lead to the same path. It would be this one. Because Jesus says there are two roads. He says there is one path that is broad, and it is wide, and it leads to destruction. And many people will find it. He says, but there's this other path that's narrow, this gate that's small, it's minuscule even. And few will find it. But it will lead to life. It'll lead to actual flourishing. There's a there's a conversation I had with a friend once, and um, we were talking about the nature of of belief and so on. And this was a this was a this person wasn't a Christian; it was a, a non-believing friend of mine. And I made this comment that everyone's life has a has a faith commitment. And and this person thought that that was a very exclusive (laughs) claim to make, and it's a very exclusive thing for Jesus to say that only this narrow path is actually the path that will lead to flourishing, and only this narrow path is, is the way that will lead to life. And him saying that this broad way is the way that many will find, and this broad way is the way that will actually lead to destruction is actually a very exclusive and narrow thing to say. And just the challenge simply back is to say, well, that in itself is a narrow claim. Every faith commitment in itself is an exclusive claim. Every commitment has to say, this is what actually leads to flourishing, and this doesn't. And by its very nature, every claim is exclusive. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is certainly an exclusive claim, but it is radically inclusive at the same time because the gospel of Jesus Christ says all who repent and believe will be saved the gospel says that anyone who repents of their sins those that have worked uh, the most vile of people are welcomed in as brothers and sisters the those that are hypocritical and religiously nasty people are forgiven and given new hearts It's radically inclusive in nature. Anyone can come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's radically exclusive because he says, only I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And there is only but one narrow way that actually leads to life. So the straight way. The straight way. What does it look like? What does it look like? Well, one is broad and many are on it. And the other is straight or narrow. Now it's 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 straight, not in the sense of like it's a straight line. So it's not straight S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. But it's straight like a like the like the bearing straight. It's 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 a confined kind of straightness. It's constricting in nature. S-T-R-A-I-T. It's constricting in nature. Just go with that. It's like a tight passage. It means to be crushed or confined or constricted. There's a narrowness to it. And the tense of the verb here would suggest that this narrowness or this constrictingness is a continuing state. That the Christian life is one of a constant narrow path. It's one of constantly trying to constrain oneself to a certain set of morals and principles and so on. ESV, I think, gets it pretty good with hard. The way is hard. It's not broad way thinking. It's a kind of living that limits your options. It's a kind of way to human flourishing that actually just limits your freedoms So one is easy and one is constricting. Um, Something that we must always realize, and I think this text is getting at, is that the way of Jesus and this narrow way kind of thinking doesn't come natural to us. This narrow way of living and thinking and discipleship is not something that comes natural to us. The best way that I've heard it sort of explained is understanding... um, Speaking in your own native language versus learning a language. When we speak in our own native tongue, we just naturally do it. We don't think about it, we just speak. We just talk, we don't think about our sentence structure, we don't think about, uh, you know, uh, we just talk. But when you learn a language, for those of you that know two languages or have, or have learned other languages, you know that it takes some serious thinking to do it. It doesn't simply just flow out of you naturally. It takes thinking, it takes work, it's... it's, it's it's not something that simply comes natural to us. And I think that's part of what the Lord's telling us here is that narrow way living, discipleship of following after Jesus is not what simply comes natural to us. It's contrary to the way that we would naturally go. It's not something that we are simply raised into. It's not something that comes natural to us. What is popular and what is natural, that is broad road kind of thinking. But narrowness, this continuing idea, is something that just doesn't come natural to us. I think we know this. Just look at our own lives. Just look at simple examples of our own lives the way that maybe we relate to our spouse or the way that we relate to our children. Our natural, my natural way is to respond critically is to respond harshly, is to respond in a way that's not loving, forbearing, and forgiving at the fore. It's broad road thinking. It just comes naturally to get irritated at my wife and children. That's natural. (laughs) And for things that just blurt out of my mouth that are unkind and rude and unhelpful. But narrow thinking is to constrict my will, to constrict my desires to not do that. To not do that. And it's a continuing state. It's a continuing state to learn to tame the tongue, to learn to tame our actions, to learn to actually be forgiving and long-suffering and forbearing with people. This stuff will never just come naturally to us, okay? It will never just be our native tongue. It will always be a learned language for us. That is the path of discipleship. The path of discipleship is to continue to pursue that constricting, narrow way But the good news, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus tells us that's the thing that leads to life, though. He's not trying to just ruin your life, okay? He's not trying to put a burden on you that's just gonna make your life blah. He's trying to show you that there is actually a path to human flourishing, learning to control your anger, your frustration, all the things that He's told us up to this point. You know the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount? is that its teachings are just pretty darn clear. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand what the Lord Jesus is calling us to here. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Forgive people as your Father forgives you. Don't judge others until you take the log out of your own eye. These are the things he's calling us to. And it doesn't take a PhD to understand what it means. We think, and the world around us says that personal autonomy, freedom of choice, freedom of expression, freedom to do and to be and to think whatever you want, that's the path to life. That's what our culture tells us. That, that. The, the off-putting of any restriction, that the ability to be whatever you want to be, radical personal autonomy. That is the gospel of our culture. True human flourishing in our culture is to just be whatever you possibly think you want to be. And to be an intolerant person is to even remotely oppose that. But my friends, that's broad road thinking, to simply do what comes natural to you. It's counterintuitive, but Jesus says that leads to destruction. Jesus says, just living out your native tongue, what comes natural to you, let you be you, let me be me, leads to destruction. And we see it all around us. We see the byproduct, we see the beginnings of the end result. A breakdown in social trust, there's a breakdown of the economy, there's more spending, less saving, more selfishness. There's a massive increase in our culture in mental distress, mental illness, more debt, more pain, more social ills, more fatherless homes, broadness. We can see the beginnings of it. As this sexual revolution continues in our country, the end will only be destruction. It will only be destruction. But constricting, the constricting nature of committing to a local church. The constricting nature of committing to a spouse for the rest of your life. Limiting your choices actually leads to freedom. Limiting your choices actually leads to flourishing. Making a commitment, constricting, narrow thinking leads to flourishing. My friends, our culture wants everything fast, flashy, big, large, with minimal to no effort. There's really nothing good in life that comes like that. The things that we all want in life committed relationships, someone that we can wake up next to 50 years from now that loves us and knows us to the innermost parts. That's not big, that's not flashy, that's not quick. That takes a long obedience in the same direction, narrow road thinking. A local church, my friends. Lance Baptist Church has been around for 110 years. What would it be like to be members of the same church for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years? Hard is the way that leads to life. Study the scriptures, my friends. The commands that Jesus gives us here in the Sermon on the Mount are the right kinds of restrictions that will lead to life. Every other discipline, we know this. We know this for triathletes, they have to find the right restrictions. If you want to become a concert musician, you have to find the right restrictions. If you want to become something, it means finding the right restrictions. It's narrow road thinking. Second, the last day, Uh, I'm going to group together verses 15 and 20 and 21 and 23. So parables two and three are going to go together. And the reason is because I think that these are two groups of people, but they're just different sides of the same coin. So he's talking about false teachers in 15 to 20, and he's talking about false disciples in 21 to 23. So false teachers and false disciples. And I think it's the same side of the same, different sides of the same coin in, in, in this sense. The false teachers here have the right doctrine, but the wrong fruit. They have the right doctrine, but no fruit. And the false disciples seem to have the right fruit, but the wrong doctrine. <laughs> they seem to have the right fruit, but they have the wrong doctrine. The false teachers, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The false teachers, they look like sheep. They look like sheep. If not, if they looked like wolves, you would know it. (laughs) You would know that they were in among the flock. But Jesus says that you will know these teachers based on the outcome of their lives, based on the fruit that is produced in their lives. I mean, our brother Severn mentioned it briefly in the catechism, that there are teachings and heresies that are out there that are promoting things that are contrary and antithetical to the gospel. And you see it in the outcome of people's lives. Hebrews thirteen seven tells us to consider the outcome of the way of life of your leaders, of those that gave the word of God to you. Because by looking actually at their lives, you'll be able to determine if they're a sheep or if they're a wolf. Because it ties into the first point. Because everyone is on a road. And every life is actually going down a certain path. And you will actually be able to tell what kind of path you are on by looking at the outcome of the way of life that you're living. My friends... To be a leader in a local church is a high calling. It means that it's a life that's under scrutiny by its very nature. (laughs) Because the people that you are teaching and trying to lead are called to examine your life. And if your life doesn't match your doctrine, then your life ought not be imitated. So these people here though, they have the right doctrine but the wrong fruit. But second, we'll dig in more of the second one here. These false disciples seem to have some kind of the right fruit in their lives. I take them to be uh, at their word that they actually were doing these things that they say they were doing in verse 22, uh, that we prophesy in your name, we cast out demons in your name and did many mighty works in your name. I don't have any reason to believe, I don't think the text gives us any reason to believe that that stuff's not true. They actually did those things. But the Lord will say on the last day, "I never knew you." Three traits of these people on the last day: first, they call him Lord. They call him Lord. You know, in the uh, in the context here, um, uh, this was where when the um, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, anytime. Uh, the name of Yahweh appears. It appears as Kurios, which means Lord. So this this is a, uh, or, or even in the in 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 uh, in secular society, Caesar was Lord. Caesar was Kurios. So in saying Jesus is Lord, is they're saying Jesus, you're you're the one that has authority. You're the one that has rightful authority over my life. They are orthodox in their doctrine. Well, it says it twice, though. Second trait. Is they say, Lord, 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 Lord. And we know uh, a Bible study methods tip here is that anytime something is repeated, it's repeated for emphasis. It's, it's being emphatic here. So when they say, Lord, Lord, it's a level of passion. So they're passionate. They have the right doctrine, they have orthodox doctrine, they're, and they're, they're, they're passionate too. And third is that they're actually in ministry, they're doing ministry. They're prophesying, they're casting out demons, they're doing many works. Orthodox in doctrine, passionate, and doing ministry. And Jesus says, in verse 23, I never knew you. Are there anything wrong with these three things? Orthodox doctrine, passion, and and doing ministry? Of course not. Of course not. What's so striking about this text is that every Christian will likewise have these traits. Every true convert will be orthodox in doctrine, will be passionate about the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory, and will be doing things of ministry. The absence of these traits shows that you're not a Christian, but the presence of them doesn't necessarily demonstrate that you are. The absence of these three traits shows that you're not a Christian, but the presence of them doesn't demonstrate that you are. I never knew you doesn't indicate that this is some kind of backslidden person. It indicates that there was never a relationship with the Lord Jesus. So let me try to give us an answer then based on, these, on this text, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who does the will of my Father. Look, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus has already given us the teaching up to this point. He's given us the teaching in chapter 5, chapter 6, and the beginning part of chapter 7. And now he's giving us four parables to simply say, Now go do it. You know what to do. I've been teaching you as one who has authority. Now you simply must do it. So the first thing that we realize that a real disciple has is the lordship issue. A real disciple has given up their own will, they've given up their own will. They've given up their own rights to their life. They've given up the rights in their life to make their own decisions. Instead, they've said, I will do your will, my Father who is in heaven. So it's not simply being orthodox in doctrine. It's not simply being passionate. It's not simply being in ministry. As important and valuable as those things are. Jesus says, though, that a true disciple has given up their will People want to know. People want to know, how can I be happy and still have control of my own life? I want, look, these these things, I want to be passionate about something. Lord, Lord. I want to be involved and help see people's lives changed. Ministry. But I want to do all of this without actually wanting God. I want to do all these things without actually wanting God himself. How can I be happy? How can I have fulfillment in my life and yet not give up control? My friends, Jesus just gives us two options. You can either abandon your own will or you can abandon your hope. You can either abandon your own will or you can abandon your hope. But you can't keep your own self-will and keep your hope. You can't have both. You can either abandon one to have the other, but you can't have them both. See, a real Christian isn't necessarily more passionate, isn't necessarily more charismatic, isn't necessarily doing more. Our text even says, didn't we do, didn't we do, didn't we do? In your name, in your name, in your name. Authentic Christianity is one who has surrendered his or her will. I no longer get to decide what I do with my life. I no longer get to decide how I spend my money. I no longer get to decide how I spend my time. I no longer get to decide where my alliances and commitments lie. I have given up my self-reliance to do the will of the Father. My friends, we said it last week, but a real Christian is one that's teachable. If you've given up your own will, you've given up lordship over your own life, and you've given it to the Lord Jesus and to do the will of the Father, that kind of person is teachable. There's a friend of mine who's an Acts 29 pastor down in California, and um, he says that one of the things that, uh, that he, te- he and his elders teach each other and remind each other, each other of is that they're to be the chief repenters in the congregation. The chief repenters in the congregation, The ones that look at their own sin, I said last week, their own sin looms large in their own eyes, radically aware of their shortcomings, and they're quick to acknowledge them and quick to repent. A Christian is someone who's approachable, someone who's first to admit wrong, that's aghast at their own sin. They know that God's way is only through life-on-life confrontation. My friends, are we quick to say, maybe I'm wrong? Are we quick to be repenters? Because our natural native tongue is to say, how dare you? How dare you approach me? How dare you say that to me? But our learned language, our learned tongue says, well, maybe I'm wrong. And this is part of what it looks like. When we surrender our will to the Father, nothing is off limits to him. Nothing. We're saying, is there any area of my life that does not match up, that doesn't meet up to what the Lord Jesus has commanded us to do? You know, there's a story that's always striking to me. It's a story of, um, of Saul in First Samuel 15, and it's after they've uh, they've they've annihilated the Amalekites, and 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 God says to Saul, He says, "I want you to um, I want you to kill all the livestock." And Saul sort of thinks to himself, He said, "Well, that I don't that doesn't really make any sense." And oftentimes obedience doesn't. It doesn't make sense at 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 first glance, and so he doesn't. He doesn't do it, and he. It's approached by Samuel, and, he, and Samuel says, Saul, you, 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 you dummy. Why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? And then Saul says, well, I wanted to offer some of them as, as burnt offerings and, and sacrifices. And Samuel says this in verse 22. As the Lord, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord your God. Behold, it is better to obey than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. God just wanted Saul's heart. He wanted his obedience. He didn't want another burnt offering. He didn't want another sacrifice. He didn't want another, Lord, Lord, didn't we do in your name? He wanted Saul's heart. My friends, and that's what he wants from us. Our obedience to him, acknowledging his lordship in our lives is an act of worship, it's an act of honor, it's an act of commitment saying, God, we want you. We don't just want the good byproducts that come from being around you. We don't want to be like those people at the feeding of the 5,000 who just followed you because they wanted more bread. God, we want you. God doesn't want the sheep, he wants you. And by keeping the sheep back, Saul kept himself. By doing it his own way. But second point I think that we need to learn. About being a disciple here. Is that somehow. We can be around the gospel. We can be around grace. And never actually believe it. Didn't we do? Didn't we do? Didn't we do? We can be around it our whole lives. You know when I was. When I got converted, I got converted when I was uh, 18 years old, and I got converted, and if you're from Lentz, I'll tell you the story some of the time, I got converted in jail. I was in jail for six months for stealing from the place that I had worked at, and I got converted in jail, and I remember my first reaction after I got converted is that I was angry. I was angry that I had been around churches my whole life and never heard the gospel, and I even told my testimony like that for probably 15 years. In fact, just a little factoid, I broke the law 15 years ago last week. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> and for probably, probably till this last week, I used to tell the story that I was angry that these people never preached the gospel to me. And then it hit me this week. They probably did. <laughs> They probably did. I wasn't just around false churches my whole life. I mean, I look back. I mean, I know they're, they're, they're gospel evangelical churches. I mean, these people probably were preaching the gospel the whole time. And I realize young people sitting here, there are people in this church that will grow up under my preaching, Severn's preaching, Chris's preaching, and they'll be around the gospel their whole young adult life, or they'll be around the gospel for the time that they're here, and they'll never maybe even actually believe it. You can be around it and not actually believe it. My friends, the gospel of grace isn't, Lord, didn't we do, didn't we do, didn't we do? Do not get to that last day with clinging to the hope of, didn't we do, didn't we do, didn't we do? Come to that last day and say, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for me because of the infinite love with which he loved me. And he poured out his blood for my sake. He suffered under the righteous wrath of God as a substitute in my place on my behalf. And I cling to him and him alone. And all of my life is now a life of grace. Everything that I have has been given to me. Everything that I have is from his gracious, sovereign hand. My friends, point three is the foundation. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Oh, my friends, what it doesn't say is that to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to build your life on him as the foundation it doesn't mean that trials won't come. Because, look, there's two examples here. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew a beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Both houses, both houses meet storms and floods And the shaking of life. Believing on the Lord Jesus doesn't mean that your life will therefore and now be absent of trial. Absent from pain. Absent from setbacks. We sang about it in that song, Sovereign Over Us. Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. You are sovereign over us. I'm clinging to your promises. So the shaking will come. The trial will come. It's inevitable. If it hasn't come yet, you just haven't lived long enough. But the shaking and the trial will come. The question is what does the foundation look like? What does the foundation look like? And you can't always see the foundation. You could look at two houses that are built on the beach and look at them, and both of them can look beautiful and put together and so on. And you don't actually know what that house is actually built on until the shaking comes, when the trial comes. In fact, you can't know until the shaking and the trial comes. God bringing a storm into your life is from his gracious, sovereign, loving hand to shake the house, to check the foundation, to see what the house is actually built on. There is a greatness That we seek in life. But the Lord is telling us that it's through this narrow gate, it's through the doing the will of the Father, building the life on the rock, which, in context of all of these examples, means to obey. It's not flashy, there's no great show about it, there's nothing really spectacular. Rather, it's fairly simple. That in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the shaking, means to continue to simply obey. To be forgiving, to be showing mercy, to be mourning. And that's not particularly flashy. There's one great thing in this text, and it is actually the very last word in the Sermon on the Mount. And the great thing is in this text is the fall of the house of the man who does not build his life on the rock. That's the spectacular thing. To watch this person's life actually fall apart and realize their life was not built on the foundation of the word of God. My friends, life is fleeting. Just yesterday, there was uh, a random drive-by shooting on 112th and Stark. That's, 10 doors down from where I live. And reading the paper this morning, it was uh, a drive-by shooting into a car that they thought were rival gang members. They weren't. It was a lady by herself that had no gang attachments whatsoever. Life is fleeting. Life can be snatched up and taken in a second. Have you built your life on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you heard the word of God and received it and held it tight? Luke 11, that place where uh, it says says to Jesus, blessed is the one who nursed you. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who hears the word of God and keeps it. And that word there, to keep it, means to protect it, to hold it tight, to guard it, to tuck it down deep into your heart. That's the blessed one. Mary's only blessed because she heard the word of God and kept it and received it, my friends. Paul was blameless in relation to the law, he tells us in Philippians chapter three. He says, I count everything, though, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of everything, And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Hear the word of God, my friends, and obey it. Build your life on the foundation. Let us pray. Our Father, we're grateful for this word to us this morning. Lord, help us to be like the publican on that last day. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to us. We are sinners. Give us the faith. Give us the strength to obey you. And Lord, I pray that those that do not know you, that can actually be around the gospel of grace for years and never actually believe it, just pray that you'd penetrate their heart. Lord, pray that you'd penetrate their heart through the preaching of the word, through the singing of the saints and through prayer by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's just be silent for a moment and just reflect how the Lord would have us respond to his word. Amen. We come to the time in our service now where we celebrate. We remember what our Lord Jesus has done for us, and we commune with him and each other at the table. And the table is open to all who have repented of their sins and have been baptized and um, put their faith in Jesus Christ. If that describes you and you're a member of another church, you're welcome to partake with us. We'll come up row by row. You can take the elements back to your seat that doesn't describe you, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, uh, then we encourage you to not take the elements. Instead, to just consider what the Lord Jesus is calling you to. He's calling you to repent and to turn to Him in faith and trust, to give up rights over your own life, lordship of your own life, and instead completely entrust yourself to Him. And He will lead you to the path of life. You can take the elements back to your seat and one of the elders will lead us corporately.